Hello, and welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. This is your host, Laura Camacho, and I'm so pleased and excited that you're here with me. And we have, of course, a very interesting and actually very handsome guest. He doesn't know that I know about him already. He's coming here to talk to you about his new book called The Performance Paradox, but Eduardo is from Venezuela, and I used to live in Venezuela, and he doesn't know that, but I do. So I'm going to get to ask him some questions about why did you come here? Because he came before Venezuela became such a train wreck. So that's going to be interesting. We're going to talk about performance. Everybody listening to this podcast is by definition a highly conscientious high performer. But as you know, and you probably have felt, you know, sometimes we burn ourselves out. Sometimes we are so committed to getting every detail right that we just collapse or we get stagnated or we, you know, can even lose our hope to live. We feel like a lack of meaning. So I don't know if he's going to talk about meaningfulness, but I will definitely bring it in. And one more thing about Eduardo is that he recorded a pretty popular TEDx talk. I think it was back in 2015. It was about growth mindset and he dances a little bit of the Macarena. So if you are interested in ever teaching your team or some of your lieutenants about growth mindset, if you look up on YouTube, Eduardo Briseño, Growth Mindset TEDx Talk, you will find a really nice summary with data and story to explain that concept. I used to use that in some of my trainings. It's really well done. So I'm excited to bring you Eduardo. Let me mention that this episode is brought to you by the Practical Guide to Effective Communication. Get recognized for the value you already contribute. That's what this book is about. It's not a beginner's business communication book. It's an advanced book has way too much information according to normal standards. I get so bored with most business books. I think I've told you that before, but there's chapters about communication style. It's got an assessment. You can find out what your communication style is about mindset, which is so important. I would say the chapters on mindset, listening and chapter 11 on expressing your points of view in a compelling and interesting way are my favorite chapters. But anyway, the Practical Guide to Effective Communication is the sponsor for today's podcast and you can find it on Amazon in both paperback and digital format. And so one more topic I want to touch on briefly before we talked to Eduardo is the impact of emotions on communication. I've had several conversations this week, so that's on my mind anywhere from people, for example, wanting to know how when they meet someone, how to start that conversation and how to leave a positive impression to managing your emotions when you are under attack. And if you have never felt like you're under attack, you're simply not doing it right (laughs) because that means you're not putting forth enough opinions or recommendations because you should definitely know what it feels like. You will be like, gosh, this is so weird. I feel like I'm being attacked. Well, the people attacking you really don't mean to bury you, but they don't like your idea because probably it's not their idea. It can be that simple. 
But in any case, managing your emotions is useful. And even if you're a stoic and you're like, I don't experience emotions, Laura. I am driven by logic. You can still use emotions. And I just want to leave you with a couple of takeaways in emotional intelligence. I'm always looking for. And in all these interviews, the people being interviewed are surprised that we cover a lot of material in a short amount of time. And that's the introvert's secret weapon, right? We're able to get to the essence of things quickly. But if you're meeting people, the emotion that you want to embody is enthusiasm. It can be counterintuitive, especially if you're an introvert. You're like, well, I don't even know this person. Why should I be excited? Well, if you act enthusiastic to meet this person, most of the time you will find that you are really pleased to meet him or her. Not always, not 100%. I love 99.5% of my clients. But every once in a while, I come across someone who is not my cup of tea. And if they are not my cup of tea, I can promise you I'm not their cup of tea either. So I won't go into details about that right now. But most of the time, if you're excited to meet someone, they're able to relax a little bit and be more authentic with you. And that is what makes a more interesting, sincere relationship. So my number one emotional intelligence and networking tip is that whenever you meet someone, just act like you are really pleased to meet them and that will really pay off. And the second tip is with managing emotions when you feel under attack. Of course, you should prepare for those kinds of situations. And you have to understand that a lot of times it doesn't have to do with you, although it could be that someone is threatened by you or feels that you're going to steal their thunder in some way. Mostly it helps to detach a little bit. Like sometimes people just want to be dumb and you can't control that. Like you cannot stop people from making dumb decisions 100% of the time. What I suggest is you always want to make the best case that you can for your point of view because you believe in it, because you believe it to be true and helpful. But if people don't want to go with what you're saying, then fine, let them suffer the consequences. So maybe sometimes it's helpful to let go a little bit. All right, so I just want to tell you a teeny bit about Eduardo before I bring him on. As I mentioned, he's from Venezuela. He's a global keynote speaker. I think he got his master's at Stanford and he met Carol Dweck there, who is the godmother and grandmother and empress of growth mindset. So he really started teaching that many years ago. And he provides trainings and talks about learning and high performance. He travels to developing countries to help companies really understand the corporate culture that's going to bring you a culture of learning and high performance. Earlier in his career, he was the co-founder and CEO of Mindset Works, which was the first company to offer growth mindset development. And his TED talk, How to Get Better at Things You Care About, I haven't seen that, but that was apparently a talk that came about after his TEDx talk that I told you about, The Power of Belief. Wow, it's been viewed more than 9 million times. And he is a member of the Aspen Institute's Global Leadership Network. 
and an inductee in the Happiness Hall of Fame. I'll have to ask him about that. And so without further ado, let's talk to Eduardo. So Eduardo, I'm so happy that you're here. When I found out that you were going to be on the Speak Up podcast. I was very excited because I knew you already from your TEDx talk and had seen you dancing the Macarena a little bit. And I thought that was very, very well done. I know you're from Venezuela. So tell our audience how you got from, I'm assuming Caracas, but whatever city in Venezuela to being on a TEDx stage. That was quite a journey. Wow, that was a, a big journey with a lot of unexpected turns. But uh, thank you, Laura, for having me here today. It's great to be at Speak Up. And it's fun to learn that you lived in Venezuela before, in Caracas. I was born in Maracaibo. I grew up in Caracas. And I thought I would always live there my whole life because everybody I knew lived there their whole life. My dad worked in the same company for 31 years. And I didn't know anybody who moved out of the country. But when I was in high school, my father was transferred to Tulsa, Oklahoma for two years for his job. And I ended up finishing high school there. And in my high school, everybody was like prepared to go to college in the American system. So I learned about the American system. And that's how I ended up staying in the U.S. My parents went back to Venezuela. That's where they're now and my sister. And I ended up going to school here at the time, I didn't have any particular interest. So I was just doing what society expected of me. And I just didn't have any better idea other than trying to get a career with high skills, like study something with, with kind of hard skills and try to get a job that was high paying. So I ended up doing investment banking in New York City and then venture capital in Silicon Valley. And after some time, I got sick. I got physically sick with a repetitive strain injury called myofascial pain syndrome. And it became pretty significant. I started losing the ability to use my hands. I met other people who had the same condition who couldn't use their hands for more than 10 minutes a day. And I realized, wow, I can't take my ability to do things for granted. And I didn't feel like I was doing anything, like making any sort of dent in the world, any difference in anybody else's life from what I was doing. So I decided I needed to change my lifestyle, learn about health, try to figure out how to heal, but also go to grad school to change around my career, do something different. So over there, I met Stanford professor Carol Dweck, and I co-founded an organization with her called Mindset Works. Just interested in social entrepreneurship, the Mindset Works helps schools foster learning cultures, what we call growth mindset cultures. And I never thought that I would become a speaker, which is what I do now, or an author, which I wrote a book called The Performance Paradox. Those were completely unexpected turns. And they came from developing a passion for the work that we do, which is to help people become motivated and effective learners and be better able to pursue their goals. So one of my board members, when I was kind of running Mindset Works, encouraged me to go out and speak with people and have people start to kind of know who I was because we were evangelizing growth mindset. And as a spokesperson, I needed to get out of the office. I grew up a very strong introvert. I'm very comfortable just being in my office. And with her encouragement and an opportunity that Carol had to do a TEDx talk that she couldn't do, then I decided to do the TEDx talk as a way to spread the message that ended up spreading. It's been watched by over 4 million people. And then four years later, I did a second one that's also been watched by over 4 million people. And that led to me surprisingly enjoying speaking and sending the message and having the conversations with people. 
And I realized I could become better at it. It's a skill like anybody can learn and learn to enjoy also. And that's one of the things that led me to, to what I do now. That is so interesting. And so everybody listening, I know that you're mostly introverts. So notice that Eduardo also can identify, and yet he is an internationally known public speaker. And I think introverts actually have an advantage when it comes to public speaking because we can plan. We can plan what we're going to say. <laughs> and that's often very useful. So I, I'm going to give you a little couple of examples of how your work on mindset has spread beyond probably what you realize. There's a private school system that is for disadvantaged children all over the state of South Carolina. It's called Meeting Street Schools. And their whole philosophy is around the growth mindset. And I imagine some of their leaders have attended maybe one of the programs that your organization sponsored, but it's really having a beautiful influence in Charleston, Greenville, South Carolina, the state, you know, which is not known for its academic prowess, our state, it's in the bottom half or maybe quarter. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but definitely the growth mindset helps. And a funny story is a couple of years ago, it was in July of 2021, I decided I needed to shake things up, which often gets me into trouble. Through that, I you know, lived in places like Venezuela, started businesses in Venezuela, learned how to hip hop dance. <laughs> so this biggest challenge has been the most humiliating yet. <laughs> so I, did, I go to a church that has a choir that sings in Latin. They sing these polyphonic, just beautiful pieces. And I'm like, how hard can it be? I'm going to join the choir. And miraculously, they let me in. I told them, you know, I've never sung, but I did know how to read music. So I start taking lessons with this voice teacher and she says, Huh. So I see you're a coach. You must believe in growth mindset. <laughs> Not, oh, you have this innate talent, Laura. I'm glad you're finally developing it. <laughs> so that's been a great journey. It's been, you know, great gift of humiliation, which I think we all need from time to time. Just to review our people, I know we're going to talk about performance paradox, but just to bridge our listeners who may not have seen your talk. And I think it's always encouraging to hear about both mindset. Why don't you just give us a little mini masterclass in what that means and how it's so powerful? Sure. So, and it's so fun to hear the story about your singing. And I like to sing too, but I don't sing very well. I haven't studied it or practiced it with a coach. And so it's something that I try to do when my wife is not around, because I know yeah, it's, not, it's not pleasant for her. <laughs> Same thing with my whistling. <laughs> um, yes. But growth mindset, when we ask people who have heard about growth mindset, what a growth mindset is, a lot of people have a lot of different answers. Like it's, they say it's being open-minded or persevering or working hard. And a growth mindset is not those things. So it's really easy to distort. A growth mindset is a belief about the nature of human beings. It's the belief that our abilities or qualities can change, that they're malleable, that we can develop them over time. So when you went to sing in the singing group, I don't know if it was a cappella. I love, like, so beautiful. 
Yes, it, but I had no idea that singing a cappella polyphonic was like joining the Harvard level when you've just graduated from kindergarten. But that was my ignorance. Yeah, but it's so beautiful to mm -hmm. hear a cappella, especially in those churches where the sound is just really magical. So when we don't know how to sing, for example, and we believe that we can learn or we can get better at singing, then we might go to a coach and try to learn strategies and practice how to get better, right? But if I believe that voice and singing is something that people either have naturally or not, and it's not something that we can develop, it's something that people either have or not, which is what we call a fixed mindset, then we would never go to a coach and try to learn oh, skills, right? Yeah. And so for people to come to your podcast, speak up and want to learn communication skills, they need to foster the belief that communication skills can be developed, right? And most of us are a mix of a growth mindset and fixed mindset. It's not like it's a binary thing, right? And sometimes we might be more in a growth mindset. Sometimes we might be more in a fixed mindset about different skills, but it's, it's helpful for us to think about what skills or qualities do we tend to see more as fixed and how might that be limiting us from engaging in the strategies that help us develop those skills. And in the same way that we can have kind of fixed beliefs about our abilities, sometimes we label other people in fixed ways, in their qualities and abilities. And that also affects how we communicate with them. Like if we believe that somebody can't change, we're not gonna share information that's helpful for them to know an opportunity for change. And so there won't be change and there'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So a fixed mindset creates a self-fulfilling prophecy, whether we're thinking about ourselves or others. I keep promising that we're going to talk about something else. I have thought of one more question I wanted to ask you about this because a lot of times in coaching clients, the person I'm talking to has a growth mindset. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be talking. They want to get better at certain things. But on their team, there is this performer who's not at the level they need to be. And yet that person believes they're doing the best they can and that these insistence that someone get better at this thing or this other thing it maybe sounds unfair or impossible. So just to speak to these leaders, do you have any insight that would help them reach people that work for them to foster the idea that we can all get better at things? Absolutely. So strong cultures and including strong team tell cultures can be so powerful. And I know you do a lot of work on culture. And so we need to set the conditions for the team to be a great learning team. And so we can first set the stage in terms of what are our values and our key behaviors that we want and that we value and that we want to all engage in. And why are those important? Like, for example, do we want to all be soliciting feedback all the time, which is what the best performers in the world are always soliciting feedback all the time? Do we want to share with each other what we're working to improve? so that we're all choosing at least one thing to be working on at any one time. Do we know what it is so we can support each other and give each other feedback around what that is? When we make mistakes, when things don't go as well as we would like, as we're seeking, do we want to talk about it to figure out what led to that mistake? What can we do differently going forward? And so setting the stage of what kind of culture do we want to build? What kind of behaviors? So that's number one. Number two is setting up the systems to engage in those behaviors. Like if you wanna talk about mistakes, when are you gonna do that? Is it part of your agenda, like a weekly agenda, or is it part of like a monthly agenda? So to make all these behaviors 
easy and the default as part of the tools and the processes that we follow? Do we have mid-action reviews or after-action reviews as part of projects? And then finally, and this is super important, is modeling learning visibly. So for the leader to model these behaviors, because often when we become leaders, we might feel that we need to be know-it-alls. We have to be confident that we're sure of our answers. And we might engage in learning, like we might listen to this podcast when nobody else is watching, or we might read, <laughs> right. or we might like talk to a coach, you know, behind closed doors. Those are all great things to do. But are we sharing with our colleagues what we're working to improve? Are we soliciting feedback from them all the time? Are we modeling the behaviors that we want them to take on? So if everybody in the team is soliciting feedback all the time, then this person is going to start soliciting feedback all the time, right? Because that's what it means to be part of this team. And if they don't, then we can share feedback and say, hey, haven't we agreed that soliciting feedback is something that we all want to do? Yeah. Are you on board with that? If not, then it might not be every good fit. It might be like, okay, we need people in the team who are soliciting feedback all the time, like all the rest of your colleagues. If they say, yes, I do want to solicit feedback, but here are my challenges, then we can coach them, right? And help them right. figure out, is it something that I'm doing that's getting in the way? Or what can we do to help you get to the point where you can solicit feedback like you want to do? Right. I love that. I love that you brought that back to culture. Like we're all cells in a Petri dish and the Petri solution is the culture. And of course, different cultures are going to encourage or discourage things. But that I believe that a team can have its own subculture within the larger culture. You know, it's obviously going to have some interface and things in common, but does it have to be identical to the larger culture? Would you agree? Absolutely. I think that the team is the strongest cultural unit because we really care what the people that we are in relationship with think of us. And we have kind of norms around how we behave with each other. So even in organizations with strong cultures, we do see a lot of cultural variability within teams. And for example, you know, Google did a study called Project Aristotle, where they looked at what made teams successful and effective. And the number one factor for them, which I think is common, it was the level of psychological safety in each team. And so whether our company culture is strong or not, we can create a strong team culture in the ways that we find most effective. I love that. Okay, I'm going to, uh, this is our sound effect for a uh, very uh, quotable. So Eduardo, I just want everybody to take note of this unless you're driving. The team is the strongest cultural unit. So that means that you guys that are leaders of teams, it's up to you <laughs> that you have more to do than you realize. You can't just lean on your larger corporate culture. And I love that you pointed out that within a corporation, the culture is going to vary from team to team. That is so cool. Yeah. And I think in, in companies, in organizations with strong cultures and with great values and core behaviors, what they're doing is they're providing great tools for team leaders to leverage and to build on, to build great team cultures, right? So if, if your organization has awesome values, or even if they don't, you can help your team frame them and figure out what, what kind of culture do we want. I love this. And I'm already thinking of so many people I'm going to send a copy of this episode to because it's exactly the encouragement and direction I think that will help them. But we want to move along to talk about performance and the learning zone and the performance zone. And so, Eduardo, I think I mentioned that the people listening, I mean, why would you listen to a podcast about communication skills unless you were a highly conscientious high performer? Like nobody else does that. So these are the super smart 
committed people listening. And we've all experienced, you, you know, share several stories where you just are crushing it and grinding and doing it and paying attention to the details. And then either you burn out, you get sick, or what's happened to me sometimes is I, I have gotten sick, but not anything serious, but you just get disillusioned. Like you just lose your will to continue. So tell us a little bit about your thesis there. And I would love for you to clarify, you know, the performance zone and the learning zone, which is kind of your framework for not burning out and not crashing. Yes. And just growing more and and increasing our skills Mm -hmm. more. So I realized in working with Carol Dweck that a growth mindset like we talked about was really important. But sometimes a growth mindset is painted as a silver bullet, as all we need is a silver bullet and that will solve our problems. And a growth mindset is critical, but it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So a growth mindset is the belief that we can change. But in addition to that, we need to understand how to change. We need to understand what are the effective strategies in order to improve it, which are strategies that you teach with regards to communication or culture in this podcast. But the foundation of how to change, what I've learned that I realized was getting in my way and it's getting in a lot of people's ways, we have this sense that in order to improve and to succeed, we just have to work hard. If we are conscientious, right? If we just put our best foot forward, trying to minimize mistakes all the time, then that's the way to grow and to increase our skills and to succeed. And what I've learned is that that's not actually the case because there are two forms of effort. There's effort to perform and effort to improve, and they're different, and we need both of them. If you think about a professional athlete, when they are playing a championship final, they are doing the moves they know best. They're trying to minimize mistakes. They're trying to not take unnecessary risks. That's what I call the performance zone. You're just trying to win. But then after the game, they're going to go to their coach and say, coach, this move that I was avoiding during the match because I had trouble with it, I want to work on that move, you know, and let's focus on that move so that next time I have a greater toolkit, for example. And that's a very different activity than what we do during the match. Instead of thinking, The way that somebody becomes a great tennis player is by playing 10,000 hours of tennis and then you'll become great. No, that's not how they become great. They become great by spending a lot of hours doing something very different from playing tennis, right? It's a very different activity and level of attention. And what most of us getting trapped in is in just, we get trapped in just always being in the performance zone, trying to do the best we can, doing what we already know, trying to minimize mistakes. And that works okay while we're novices. When we don't know how to do something and we just try to do it, we'll get better. But once we become proficient, we'll stagnate and we'll keep working hard and we won't continue to be significantly in building our skills. And so then we develop a fixed mindset because I'm working hard, I'm not getting better, therefore I must not be able to get better. When in reality, the issue is that we're not engaging in effective strategies to improve, which are different from these strategies to perform. And I think a lot of us get trapped into this, like I I did from school. Like in school, everything was graded with a letter or a number. And that sends the message that school is a performance zone. It's a place where you're supposed to do everything that you already know, because that's the only way you can do things to get 100 all the time. And so it's very confusing, right? And we get into this habit of just wanting to do everything perfectly. And that keeps us from improving. Yes. And that's the performance paradox, which is the name of the book is the counterintuitive reality that 
if we focus only on performing, our performance suffers, right? Our results go down if we're only focused on performing because we also have to figure out how do we embed the learning zone into our work and lives. But to what you said also, not only does embedding the learning zone improve our outcomes, but it also improves the journey. You're just more joyful because you're exploring, you're discovering, you're also experiencing less anxiety because when there's challenges, which we all have, when things change, we know how to deal with it. We know we can learn from it. And we also build deeper relationship with each other because I'm more curious about other people. I ask more questions. I listen better. And that leads to greater self-disclosure. So greater trust building and relationship forming. And all of that makes the journey better, not just the destination. That's so good. And that makes me think, to me, a lot of the performance, if it's ego driven, like I have to be the best because I am the amazing Laura Camacho. And then the learning zone, it seems like that takes you away from your ego, right? And I think that gives a better result. Am I imagining that or is that a real thing? Yeah, I think that's right. When we are more in, particularly in a fixed mindset, we are more focused on proving rather than improving. Because if we have the belief that abilities and talent is fixed, then what we want is to feel that our ability and talent is at a high level, right? That we are naturally talented. And so what we tend to try to do is do things we already know how to do well, quickly, without mistakes, without effort. And if we do struggle, we try to hide that. If we make mistakes, we try to hide them. We lie to ourselves and to others. So we're trying to protect our ego. We're trying to protect our person because there's no solution. If we're struggling, if, if our abilities, our skills are not as high as somebody else's, it just makes us feel badly and we don't have a solution, which in the learning zone or in the growth mindset, we understand that we all can improve in different dimensions. If somebody else is better at one skill, that's great. But, you know, we can learn from them and get better. And everybody's complex. Everybody has challenges. Everybody has other things that they're working on. Absolutely. And I, and I also think it helps people to be better leaders, but not only to be better leaders, but to be leaders. Because a lot of times people, highly conscientious, you know, these perfectionist performers get stuck as worker bees, like the steroid infused worker bees, because they're so myopically almost focused on the performance and not on the growing and the leadership. And also it's reinforced by school of, I turn in the work, I get an A. I turn in the work, I get an A. And that will take you so far in your career, but not into serious senior leadership. So what do you see as the relationship of this paradox to becoming an effective leader? I agree. What you said about you get an A and you get rewarded and that works, it does work up to a certain point, like you said, is it works while you're getting A's, right? Once you start getting B's or C's, then you say, oh, I, I'm not interested in this anymore. I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to skateboard or I'm going to become an actor, whatever it is, because you don't want to try and fail, right? And so a fixed mindset works while things are easy. And what happens is that things get hard at some point, whether it's middle school or college or workplace or when we become a leader, right? When we become a leader, there's so much complexity. And as a leader, we're trying to lead to new places that we haven't been to, right? We're trying to get our team to create a new reality that doesn't exist. And that journey is going to involve learning and iterating and experimenting and learning how to work better with each other. And then there's going to be a new teammate and we're going to need to figure out how to work with that. And there's always 
things changing. And then also very kind of specifically, sometimes we talk about natural leaders, which can foster a fixed mindset about leadership, right? The idea that if people are good at leadership because they're naturals at it, as opposed to everybody can continue to improve. And so when we see leadership as a series of skills that can be developed, that also helps us become better leaders and know that we can always continue to grow in our leadership. I like the... um... The idea that leadership is a series of skills. And sometimes those skills are visible, like being able to say something at the drop of a pen sounds very eloquent, but you never see other people's leadership skills on display. There are things beneath the surface that that very skilled speaker may have serious problems with organization that you don't see. So I really was intrigued in your book by the story from Cirque du Soleil, because I think Probably everybody listening has seen a performance of Cirque du Soleil. If you haven't, you should. It's a a circus for adults, and it's just, like, mind-blowing. How did you make that connection? I thought that was really cool. And tell our audience a little bit about that. It is mind-blowing. and I love watching Cirque du Soleil perform. They do these incredible acrobatic things, but they do them beautifully and artistically, Mm -hmm. like you say. It's just such a delight to watch them. I've had the pleasure to watch them a couple times. I go out of my way to watch them. And now, the more I watch them, I, I sometimes watch them with this new lens of what I've realized is that we tend to watch great performers like Cirque du Soleil when they're on stage, when they're showing the things that they have already no cold. And they do these incredible risky things where if they fall, they might die. They're not making mistakes when we're watching them. And we might get the impression that they're naturals, that they're just these incredible human beings that do these things because that's how they were born. What we often don't have top of mind is that the reason Cirque du Soleil is so good at what they do is not because they've done it for 10,000 hours again, like what we're seeing on stage, but they become so good because they do something very different from what we see on stage. Because what we're seeing on stage is their performance zone, but behind curtains at the gym or at the studio, they're making a lot of mistakes. They're dropping the ball. They're missing their timing because they're focused on the next level of challenge. They're focused on what they haven't mastered yet. And what I've learned from interviewing them and from documentaries is that the show is always evolving. The artists are always working on new skills and that keeps them interesting and interested and engaged and the show evolving. But even from when they begin their job at Cirque du Soleil, they Cirque du Soleil recruits from people who were Olympic athletes who have already been working for many years with athletic coaches, right, on their skills. But even when they join the company, they go to Montreal for a few weeks or a few months and they work with two coaches, an art coach and an athletic coach. They work very deliberately and there's cool videos online about how they do that. And then when they join a show like, you know, in Las Vegas or Atlanta or, you know, Charleston, wherever Mm -hmm. it is, they always have those two different coaches and they go to work early around noon for several hours. They work on the learning zone, trying the things that they haven't mastered yet, making lots of mistakes. And then in the evening, they show us what they've already mastered. You know, that's the light that we see. Again, most of us get stuck on stage and that gets us stuck. So we can learn from Sergio Soleil how to continue to improve. We have to do something different than just perform. Exactly. My husband is a professional musician, a violinist, also Venezuelan. And he always, without reading about mindset, points out that students just practicing, even getting students, young people to practice is, of course, quite challenging. But you can't just practice the same thing that you've done. If you don't change the way you practice, you're not going to get better or not going to get better. It's fast. So he's always teaching them 
violin learning strategies. And I know that learning strategies are integral to your message. So teach us some learning strategies that we can use to not get disheartened and maybe to like get out of a rut when we're trying to learn something that seems hard. Sure. When I was a child and a teenager, I used to think that I would play the guitar and I was in a rock band and we would play in bars. When I practiced the guitar, I would just practice the songs that I like to play and I would sing because I like to sing, like I said before, and I would have fun practicing. But I would just practice a song, which is really performing. It's not really practicing. And I was a very mediocre guitar player because I didn't realize the difference between practice and performance. And that word practice is something that we confuse. Sometimes we say, this doctor has been practicing for 10 years. No, they've been doing their job for 10 years, but that's different than practice. So for the violin, or the guitar, the way to improve is something called deliberate practice, which is instead of playing a song, you take a very specific technique within a song and you just practice that technique and see how it sounds. And then based on the sound, you make an adjustment and you try it again. And based on the feedback, the feedback is how it's sounding in that case. You make another adjustment and you practice. And Dr. Anders Ericsson at Florida State University studied all this and he studied professional violinists. And one of the things that he found is that the best violinists sleep more than other violinists. And that's because deliberate practice takes a lot of concentration. So it takes a lot of mental energy to concentrate. And it's not like they do it for 10 hours a day. They do it for maybe a half hour or like an hour or an hour and a half max. The quality is really important. And so it's not just the amount of time we do this, but it's how concentrated we are and how effective we are in our practice. Those are things like violin or sports, you know, deliberate practice is important. But for most of us in the workplace, I think soliciting feedback is an incredibly powerful, probably the most powerful tool that we have because we uncover information from how we're coming across, what we're doing that's effective, ideas for what we could do better. So soliciting feedback is something anybody can do. Experimenting. If we do the same thing every day in the same way, there's no way we can improve. In order to improve, we have to change. So we have to figure out what is one thing that I'm going to try differently or tweak and then see whether that's working better. And sometimes when we experiment, we tend to get confused and try to make that too performance oriented. Like we might say, we might have an idea and get so excited about that idea that then we just want to scale it and execute it as opposed to first test our hypothesis in a small way to learn and iterate quickly. And once we become smarter, then we can focus on scaling. So examining mistakes, we don't learn from mistakes. We learn from reflecting on mistakes. So when things go wrong, we can think about what can we change to avoid this mistake in the future? So for example, when we are serving a customer and there's something bad that happens and we need to solve a customer issue, often we focus only on solving the issue for that customer, which is important, we have to do that. But we miss the step of thinking, how can we change our processes or our systems so that this same error doesn't happen with future customers? Also, sometimes we tend to problem solve in silos in our department when some of the lessons that we're learning can be helpful to other departments, right? What can we do better for this customer we could share with marketing or with products? And so kind of systems thinking and more collaboration cross-functionally is something also to think about in terms of how to improve so that we can better perform. Wow, that's okay, everybody listening. I'm just going to say you're welcome. Yes, I bring you the best. And that was just the best kind of 
performance coaching you can get for your team. So it pays to listen to this podcast. How is it free? I don't even know. So Eduardo, unfortunately, our time has come to an end. I will let you have the last word. If there's something I haven't asked you that you would like to share with the audience, go for it. Or if you want to tell them a little bit more about your book, do that. But I'll let you have the last word. Sure. Well, I would say that sometimes we engage in the learning zone in private on our own, which is okay. But when we do it in collaboration with our team, with our colleagues, with our loved ones, we can do it so much better. More brains are smarter than one brain. And so when we apply kind of the communication skills that Laura teaches us to better communicate with each other, we can learn better and we can perform better. So think about how you can encourage or engage the people around you to be in this journey with you. And if you want to learn more, if you want to dive deeper, a resource is my book, The Performance Paradox. It's available wherever books are sold. I'm really excited that it was selected as a must-read by the Next Big Idea Club, which is curated by Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, and Dan Pink. Available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. There you go. And I just want to say, even though I said I was going to let you have the last word, I take it back. (laughs) I just want to say, I think that just... The language, you know, of course, I'm a words person, but learning zone and performance zone, I think that's so helpful for leaders, for parents, for teachers. I think that's a really helpful concept that you developed and are spreading. So thank you for that. It was so good to have you here. Thank you so much. By the way, Eduardo got up very early to talk to you guys this morning. So we appreciate that so much. And I'll catch everyone on the next episode. 